0: So the reading this evening is from uh, your final page 962, which is the very last page of the Old Testament. And it's Malachi 3, starting at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed." For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. But as we
1: begin, let me pray. Let me ask for God's help as we come to the word of Malachi. Let's pray together. Father, you are a wonderful God, an unchanging God. Your word is everlasting. It is good. It is something we can feast off and we can delight in. It is unchanging And it's so deep and rich. And we pray that your word this evening would speak into our hearts. That we would come to know you all the more as a wonderful, everlasting, unchanging God. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, do keep that page open in your Bibles. It's Malachi chapter 3. So page 962. If you have closed your Bibles, please do keep them open um, as I'll be working through this passage this evening. But I want to start by telling you a little story. Um, I remember a friend telling me about this burger place in town, in London. Now, apologies to vegetarians and vegans uh, here, but I do love a decent burger. I don't know about you, but I I really do like them. A few years ago, uh, around London, there was this huge craze for burgers. And you see burger joints popping up everywhere. And this guy came and he told me about... He was describing this burger to me that he'd had. He was like a burger prophet. He was telling me about this handmade patty, the minced beef. It was so beautifully aligned, beautifully spiced, the garnishing inside with the bun. I'd just had my lunch, but I was still getting hungry just listening to this guy. He was telling me about some truth about this wonderful burger, and I had a choice to make. I could trust what he said and go for it, or I could miss out. Now, with an opportunity, opportunity like this, with me loving burgers, I had to go for it. I'm not going to pass that up. So after work, we walked down, we went across, we journeyed across, got on the tube, went across London, and we got there, we're walking down the street, and we see the burger joint, and there's this huge queue of people outside. They'd obviously heard the news too, so they were all queuing up, waiting. And we got there, and the guy came out and said, it's a 30-minute wait before you can get a table. I'm thinking, 30 minutes for a burger? Are you mad? Apparently, there are three McDonald's here in Basingstoke. I said, well, we should just go here instead, right? That's what I'm thinking. What was I doing? Was it worth the wait? And my friend kept telling me, it's worth it. It's worth it. Trust me. Let's just stick by it. Let's stick by it. And we sat down. We got the burgers. I took my first bite. And silence. I just kept eating and eating. After two minutes, I was done. My friend looked at me and he said, was it worth it? Was it worth the wait? Was it worth the journey across London to get here? And for me, yeah, it was. It didn't disappoint. Now I can see some of you, probably at Burger Lovers, are sitting there thinking, where is this place? <laughs> so just to get that, clear that off your mind so you can focus on the rest of the passage, uh, it's called Patty and Bun. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's in central London. If you're ever down there, do visit. I, it was a few years ago. It was pretty good back then. I hope it's still good now. Uh, but Patty and Bun, it's, it's worth a visit. But this passage isn't about, isn't about burgers, but it's a bit like what this passage is telling us today. There is this central truth in this passage. There's a reality, there's a truth that the prophet is telling the people about God, about who God is, and in many ways through this passage telling us today. And there is this chance for us, there's a chance for either for us to grasp this wonderful blessing that God is speaking of or for us to completely miss it. That's what we're going to see in this passage. The first half is going to be focusing on what this truth, this reality is, And the second half of the passage then tells us, look, there is a cost to it. You've got to make a decision. And the question behind it is then, is it worth it? That's what we're doing. That's what we're going to look at today. So keep with me. The first thing we're going to look at is this truth, this reality. The unchanging God calls on unchanging people. That's the first thing we're looking at. The unchanging God calls on unchanging people. Look how today's passage starts in verse 6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. That's a huge statement. I think it's actually the central statement of this whole book of Malachi. But what we're going to do is focus on how this, how this statement brings us from what was said before into what's said today. Now, just imagine a world leader who will remain nameless. But imagine you were to turn on the TV tomorrow and he were to say, sorry, I've kind of given it away, but <laughs> I never change. Now, I don't know what would go through your minds, but I'd be thinking, wow, this guy is stubborn. And you sort of grown thinking, oh man, if he's never going to change, it's never going to get any better. What are we in for? For some of us this evening, you might be here for the very first time. Others may be quite new to Christianity and the Bible. Others of you who are Christians may have friends who've asked you, what's this God of the Bible like? And they probably have these prejudgments, pre-assessments of who God is. And they often come across with this idea that God is really fierce, really angry, really judgmental. That he's just a God who spoils things and punishes people. Now, if that's you, can I say, in some ways, you're right. That will make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, pretty, but in some ways, you are right. God is a God who does judge. Just flick your eyes up to chapter 3, verse 5, just above the passage today. And you'll see here what god says so i'll come near to you for judgment i'll be quick to testify against sorcerers adulterers perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and fatherless and deprive aliens of justice but do not fear me now in this list you probably heard there's a list of injustices it doesn't cover absolutely everything in the world but it does cover all the things that god has been saying is injustice according to him And I hope you agree that just looking at that list, many of these, if not all of them, we would say are injustices today. Adultery, fraud and theft, oppression of foreigners, widows and orphans. People march and rally and cry out against these sorts of injustices. And the wonderful thing is that God equally hates this sort of injustice. He wants to punish injustice. He wants to judge it. He wants to punish oppression. And I think, I hope you agree, that that is actually a good thing. We don't want to see injustice in the world. Neither does God. But this list that we see in verse 5, I think is summed up by that final phrase. These people do all these things, but do not fear me. See, the big cause, the big root cause of all these injustices is that people do not fear God. That's actually the injustice against God, and that is the big, big issue. God is the creator. He is the maker of everything. The Bible tells us that right at the beginning in Genesis. In the beginning, God, He was there before any of this existed. The Bible also tells us that He knit each of us in our mother's womb, each and every one of us sitting here. God knit us together. I I want you all to do something for me. This is an interesting experiment. Take a deep breath. Just breathe in this lovely Basingstoke, St. Mary's air. Just breathe in and breathe out. Let's try that again. Breathe in, breathe out. You're so good. I could get you to do anything today. Um, Now, I want you to see, when you breathe in and breathe out, do you realise that God actually lets you do that? That is the God of the Bible. He actually lets us breathe. He keeps our hearts beating so we can wake up day in, day out. It's not just a series of random molecules and particles moving about that might help us to understand how how things work, but God is the one who controls all of these things. And the great injustice is that people no longer fear him. There's no regard for him. An injustice against God means he will judge those people. And so when God says in verse 6 of today's passage, I, the Lord, do not change, that's supposed to instill some fear into our hearts. God just judges injustice against him and against others. That is the God of the Bible. So in some ways, that thought that God is fierce is true. But this phrase, I, the Lord, do not change, swings us into today's passage. And we see him talking now to a particular group of people. Look at, God, look at who God speaks to. So he says, it carries on in verse 6, So you, O descendants of Jacob. Now this is another phrase for the Israelites, the God, of God's people in the Old Testament. And it's probably helpful to give you a bit of background. Back in the Old Testament, God promised to, to Jacob to this man Jacob, and actually to his, his forefather, his grandfather Abraham, that he will make them a great nation. He's going to guide them to a great land, and he will bless them. He'll be with them in this land. And it's a wonderful promise, It's is often summed up by the expression, I will be your God, and you will be my people. We hear that echo throughout the Old Testament. And this word, this, this title, Lord, basically means I'm, I'm not just the creator God who sits up there, but I'm a relational God who is with my people. And part of this deep relationship is a promise. Now, the Bible word for promise is, is often called covenant. You might have heard that sometimes at weddings, you hear the, the covenant of marriage. It's basically a deep promise between two parties, between two people. And when this deep promise is established, often you have this public decora- declaration so everybody can hear. So when, we get, when people get married, you, you say publicly to your friends and witnesses in sickness and in health till death do us part I will, I will be in this relationship with this person and basically marriage is reflecting this relationship God has with his people in this deep relationship there's a public declaration a decree as it were it's a law that God has given and saying this is how I publicly relate with my people that is what's going on here and so what God has, is saying when he says descendants of Jacob is you people of this promise who have this special relationship with God. Now, if they've got a special relationship with God, you'd you'd expect them to be exempt from all this judgment. That's what we think. But hold that thought. And I want you to think about someone really close to you, someone you really care about. It might be the person sitting next to you, it might not be. But think about those relationships that you have with those sorts of people. And when you really love and care about people who are very close to you, what do you do? You speak and you listen. That is crucial, that communication aspect. Now, I've been married for a year and a half, and I'm glad my wife's not here, because she'd say I'm terrible at that. <laughs> and I hope you're better. But here's the thing. If your friend, if this person you're thinking of, never listens to you, never pays any attention to you, turns their back on you every single time, what would you do? There'd be no relationship there. I know what I would do. I'd get my contacts book out, Delete WhatsApp. Delete friend. Facebook. Block. I'll just get cut them out of my life. I think that's what I do. If they kept doing that, time and time again, what's the point? And that's exactly what the Israelites have done. Do you, carry, do you see how it carries on in verse six? Sorry, sorry, verse seven. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. They've just turned away from God, from that promise that He made. And do you see, it has, it's not just a one time, but it's generation after generation after generation, ever since the time of your forefathers. And the irony here is that God has just said, I, the Lord, do not change. And he's saying, neither do you. You've been the same, even from this promise, you've always been unchanging in your rebellion against me. See, what the Israelites were doing wasn't right. This was injustice against God. So despite God's wonderful promise, they turned away, and God had every right to judge them, to destroy them as well. And so what we see is this revelation of the human heart. We're stubborn in our ways. We turn away from God. That's our default position as human beings. If if chapter 3, verse 5 showed the stark realities of injustice in the world and injustice against God, this passage shows that even the people of God in the Old Testament we're doing exactly the same thing, turning away from God. And in that sense, all of us, all of humanity deserves God's judgment. But here comes the good news. So that's a bit grim to start with, but there is good news in the Christian world. Because the unchanging God calls an unchanging people. It's absolutely astounding. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 6, but he says, I, the Lord, do not change... So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That is mind-blowing. Because God is withholding his judgment from his people. He's not cutting them off. Why is that? Because God is firstly unchanging in his faithfulness. He has this faithful promise that he's made to the descendants of Jacob. He remembers that promise that he would love his people, that he would lead them to the promised land, and he is not going to forsake that promise. He is unchanging in his faithfulness. Secondly, he is unchanging in his patience. Generation after generation, they've turned away, and God is patiently keeping with them. Thirdly, God is unchanging in his mercy. Even though they've rejected him, turned away from him, time and time again, God is again willing to hold back his anger, hold back in his judgment to give them a chance. A chance to do what? This is a key thing. In verse, at the end of verse 7, this is what God says, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. I hope you see from that how, how much God loves his people, how patient he is, how faithful he is, how merciful he is. I'm still here. I'm still waiting. Will you come back to me? Now, in Bible language, the the word we often use is repentance. God is calling his people to repentance. This unchanging God is saying, look, you unchanging people, repent. Repentance simply means you're turning from something to something else. God is saying, look, turn away from anything else that isn't me and turn back to me. That is what he's telling his people. And it's the same message for us today because that's the same message that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought into this world. As Jesus came into this world to preach, what did he say? Matthew four seventeen Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The whole mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was to get an unchanging people standing under God's, God's judgment to turn back to the unchanging God. The problem is that people are stuck in their unchangingness, in their rebelliousness, in their stubbornness. But here's God's love for us today. He sent his son, Jesus, not just to preach that message of repent, but to actually do it for us, to take up the cross. The cross was a sign of death and of judgment, and Jesus willingly took on that judgment that was sitting over our heads, and it was poured out on him instead. At the cross, what we see is God's unchangingness. Unchangingness in his patience, his mercy, and his love for his people. That is what God is showing. That is what God is calling us to. The unchanging God calls us, he calls to an unchanging people. Now, I hope you see God's desire for us, God's longing for us. He wants us, he wants us, a rebellious, unchanging people. And he says, look, I'm giving my son up for you. That's how much I love you. So that you can be my sons and daughters today. Will you come back to me? Some of you may have doubts lingering in your mind. Would God really accept someone like me? Then can I remind you, if that's going through your mind, God is unchanging in his faithfulness. He's shown how faithful he is to the Old Testament promise that he made to Abraham, to Jacob. As we saw in this passage, oh, you descendants of Jacob, you're not going to be destroyed. And he's faithful even today to the promise that Jesus made at the cross as he cried out, it is finished. Your injustice against God and to others is all paid for, it's all forgiven. Now, I don't know where you stand at the moment with God, but I do know that we all need to hear these words. Return to me, and I will return to you. And so if you're a Christian, would you please be encouraged by these words? Remember that we trust a God who is so, so patient, so faithful, so loving, and he is unchanging in those things. And if you haven't done so already, would you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? Would you turn to this loving, merciful, unchanging God of the Bible. Now, as you ponder those things, you might be asking, well, is it worth trusting God? Is it worth being a Christian? And I want to say, yes, it is. Just like it was worth me waiting for that burger, this is even better than that. Don't miss out on the blessing. That was the danger the Israelites fell into. And so this is the second thing this passage moves us into. The second thing is don't rob God, but trust God. Don't rob God, but trust God. Look how this conversation carries on. At the end of verse 7, God says, but you ask, how are we to return? So in many ways, it's almost as though the Israelites are saying, what have we done wrong? How are we supposed to return to you? And God in his patience carries on in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet rob me. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Now just to help you understand what's going on here, the tithes that's used here, it's just an offering. Offer material, so it could be crops or livestock or money, just depending on their job. And they give this to God in gratitude of the promise that they have with him. It's part of the law that was given. So they give 10% and maybe a little bit more. And in verse 10 you'll see God was speaking, look, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The house God is referring to is is basically the temple. The temple was a sign that God lived with his people. So what was happening was the people would bring their tithes, their offerings to the priests in the temple and the priests would then carry on their work of sacrifices and so on to ensure that their relationship with God is is good, that they maintain that promise that they have with God. And it's just a, a way of expressing God's relationship with his people. That's what's going on here. That's the background. Now, under this promise, this Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant arrangement, there was this very strong idea of blessing and curse. And so when the Israelites were obedient, that led to blessing, and if they were disobedient, that led to curse. And so when God says in verse 9, you are under a curse, they would would have seen this very visibly in the material world. They would have seen they were in a famine, really poor harvest, And the reason was because they were being disobedient. That was part of this relationship they had with God in the Old Testament. And God explains it to them. You're withholding your tithes. Now come back to me and think about that that person again, the, the person you really care about. Now hopefully by this time you're thinking, yeah, I've got good communication with this person. But how do you show that? How do you show that you care for this person? What do you do? Of course you say wonderful things about them. I really care about you. I really love you. But surely you you do things to show that also, wouldn't you? Through actions, we show how much we love them, how much we care for them. You know, I I buy flower, I should buy flowers for my wife, uh, take her out to dinner, and buy her gifts because that's an expression of how my heart feels about her. Now, why do we do those things? Because we know it's worth that person's worth it. This relationship is worth it, and so we invest and our time and money, we sacrifice those things and we make an effort. The principle here is that the outward actions show where our hearts lie. And so for the Israelites back then, their holding back their tithes was an outward expression of their lack of trust, their lack of of love for their God. See, this thought was running through their minds, I'm not sure it's really worth giving these things to God. There was no no trust there. And what God says is, you're robbing me. You're robbing me through your actions, but more importantly, through your heart. Now, just a point of clarification, this this Old Testament, Old Covenant arrangement, uh, this was all in the Old Testament. Today, through Jesus, as Christians, we live under the New Covenant. And that was established by Jesus through his death and his resurrection. The Old Covenant merely points us to the New Covenant. And so I've got to be clear here that it doesn't apply in exactly the same way today. But I think we often fall into that trap. Too often today, we think of this relationship with God being like the Old Covenant. We think, if we're good, then God's going to reward and bless us now. And if we're suffering, if something's going wrong, then we've probably done something wrong to God. That's often the the way we think, this one-for-one relationship. But the new covenant is different. Just to give you a few examples, Matthew 5.3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 6.19, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is constantly pointing us to these future blessings, this future reward in heaven. Another great example. Think about the, the story of Jesus at the cross, There were two other thieves next to him. You might be aware of this story. And one of them says to them, Lord, please remember me as you go into into your kingdom, your father's kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. But think about it. This guy is on the cross, nailed. Is he being blessed at that instant? All of a sudden, is he getting riches and off the cross? No, he's not. He's dying. But the Lord promises that today you will be with me in paradise. He's pointing him to the reward in heaven. The apostle paul understood this in ephesians 1 3 he says praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ and so what we see is is in this new covenant age that we're in today being obedient to god doesn't necessarily mean we receive material blessings just like the old testament there may actually be good things and bad things that come about in in our lives but under the new covenant Jesus guarantees that there are blessings that are to come in the future. And just as a a side note, that should help us to think about the opposite. So when things aren't going so well in our lives, we often think, I've done something wrong. What have I done wrong is where we often land. God's punishing me for something. But that's not what we are to think of today. Jesus often spoke that following me, being a Christian, will mean that you will see suffering and persecution in this life now but we will see the blessings fully realised when we come to see the Lord face to face that is what we have as Christians so we need to sort of think that this old covenant, this old testament promise it doesn't apply in the same way one for one today so then you're thinking well what's the point then there is something that we do learn from Malachi, there's a principle that we do learn that is really important I think for us today So thinking about our outward actions being a reflection of our hearts, where we put our time and money is most revealing about the priorities of our hearts. Now, this is often a question that comes to my mind. It's probably a question that many of us might be thinking of from time to time. As we become Christians, as we live the Christian life, we start wondering, is it worth my time? Is it worth my finances, my resources, my gifts? to follow God? Repenting and turning to God sounds great, but being a Christian sounds like you can't do a lot of things. Our time and money, our efforts go elsewhere. I love playing football, and it means probably that I can't join a sports club on a Sunday morning. We can't buy that new car or new house, perhaps, because financial resources go elsewhere to other needs. Weekday evenings when we could be out socialising and having a good time, going bowling or Whatever you guys do, maybe taken up with time spent with people at church, reading through God's word together. Those costs come to mind, and we think, "Is it worth it?" And our reaction is naturally to hold back. Yeah, okay, I might re- I might go to God, but it's half-hearted. It's non-committal. You're not wholly giving your lives and your hearts to Him. That's the problem the Israelites had: half-hearted worship is robbing God. Now, if there's that temptation, just look at what God says. This, again, is astounding in this passage. Verse 10. If you look down with me at verse 10, it says, Bring the whole tide into the storehouse that may may be food in my house. Test me in this. Just try me, God says. Just try me and watch what I'm going to do. Give me your whole tithe and watch how I will bless you. I'm going to give you so much that you won't know what to do with it. Do you see that how he carries on? And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. Everybody's going to be looking up thinking, wow, what has happened here? See, this is a promise in the old, under the old covenant, right? And so what they saw was a material crop and blessing, but it was just a short time for them, maybe a, a few years. But we think about where we are today, and under the new covenant, under the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is something even better for us in store. It's not just the material world we look at, but something even greater. But there is... It, we don't want to separate those two too much, because there are some blessings that we receive as Christians today to just point out a couple for you i think personally in my life i felt this and maybe many of you have as well becoming christians but we find this this peace this freedom in our hearts because we're not no longer under the pressures of this world this world is so busy taking us captive saying you need this you need to improve this you need the approval of the world without these things without this stuff without that degree without that Dyson hairdryer or whatever it might be, you're worthless. That's the sort of message. These adverts bombard us. You need more. You need more. And and this puts so much pressure on us. The worries and pressures and successes of this world, they become not so important anymore as a Christian because our hope is beyond this world, and it's guaranteed. We no longer need the approval of man because we already have the approval of the Creator God who owns everything, I think another thing I found is incredible is that as a Christian, you you have a big family, a new family. The brothers and sisters that you sit with here who are Christians, they become your brothers and sisters. A family who come to love and support you in times of challenge and who share in your triumphs and joys. A family which isn't actually just constrained to these four walls, but go anywhere in the world and when you meet other Christians, they're your brothers and sisters. It is a global worldwide family and my have i been blessed with that have i felt that as i've been at oak hill the struggles that we have there when you see that the cake that someone's cooked and just left anonymously for you on the door there are material blessings that you get from this wonderful new family that you have but that's just momentary they're pointing to the greatest blessing there is to be called god's child to be given new life Jesus didn't just die at the cross, but he rose again. The tomb was empty. And the resurrection points us to this new life that we have in Christ. And that's a life that we have now, but that goes on into eternity. It's not a momentary blessing today, but a monumental blessing for eternity. Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. And it will be so great When we sit at the high table with God Himself, when He calls us my son, my daughter, where we feast in glory with Him, perhaps with patty and bun burgers, I don't know. (laughs) But this is a promised blessing that we have, the inheritance we have as Christians, when the Lord Jesus says, Come and sit here with me, well done, my good and faithful servant. As Christians, we will have days when when we wonder, is it worth it? And as someone who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus Christ yet, you will also be asking perhaps, is it worth it to become a Christian? When we ask those questions, can I say, look at this passage again and hear God say, just try me. Test me in this and watch what I'll do. I will never disappoint you because I am an unchanging God, unchanging in my faithfulness, and mercy and my love. I've shown that to you in my son. In my very son who died and rose again to give you new life. A new hope to live for. And your eternal blessing will be monumental. And until then, you have a new family. You have these wonderful brothers and sisters with you. Who can walk along with you. And there have been many who have gone before you. And, they, and you know when you get to heaven, what they'll say When you ask him, was it worth it? Was it it worth waiting for? You will hear a resounding chorus of, yes, without a doubt. Look at where we are now. Look at who we're with. Would you trust the Lord Jesus today? Would you keep on trusting in him? Because I guarantee you, it is so, so worth it. Let's pray together as we think about these things. Mm. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are an unchanging God, unchanging in your mercy and your patience and your grace. Father, help us to listen to that call of return to me, Help us to turn to you if we haven't done so already. And if we have, help us to keep trusting in you wholeheartedly. Looking to that future blessing that we have in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.